Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The crowds of spectators began arriving while it was still daylight outside. The onlookers were a motley crew of nearby townspeople, reporters, and off-duty prison guards sprawled outside the main gate of New York's infamous Sing Sing Prison, about 30 miles north of New York City in the town of Ossining. They began gathering before word had even officially come down that two of the country's most infamous convicts had definitively exhausted all avenues of appeal. Inside the prison, Barbara Vincent Stefano shaved Judd Gray's face and clipped a patch of hair from the back of his head before moving on to Gray's former lover, Ruth Snyder. There, the barber supervised as matron Lillian Hickey snipped a matching bald spot on the back of Ruth's head. Outside, people kept arriving, some from neighboring states. As relayed in the book, The Double Indemnity Murder, quote, 100 private motor cars were parked in two rows, many with their lights on, illuminating the strange scene. Four guards stood outside the gate to keep order. Babies cried, children wailed, young couples on dates necked and sipped from hip flasks. Parents fretted that their high school-aged children were paying no attention at all to the regent's examinations coming up on Monday. Old-time Austin residents were reminded of years before the war, when half the town would turn out on execution nights and cheer when a black flag was hoisted on the prison turret to indicate that the execution had taken place. End quote. At 11 p.m. January 12, 1928, everything was in order to end the lives of Judd and Ruth, two of the most talked-about killers in American history, whose case is credited with the rise of the modern-day tabloid and with inspiring one of the most influential film noirs of all time. At the heart of this case is its first victim, who was born Albert Schneider into a large but close-knit German family in 1882. The son of a Brooklyn baker, Albert had more of an artistic bent, so he attended the Pratt Institute and, upon graduating, got jobs in commercial art studios. He seemed proud and maybe a little pompous when announcing his profession as artist to anyone who asked. He also was an outdoorsman whose love of boating led him to work as arts editor for Motor Boating Magazine, a Hearst publication. 
By the time the world knew the man, his surname had been changed to Snyder, and he was better known as a murder victim than by any of his talents or passions. Snyder changed his name to be less German-sounding at the request of his wife, Ruth, whom he'd met by chance in the 19-teens. Ruth had been working as a telephone operator back in the days when that job had to be done by a human. She misdirected a call to him one evening, which prompted him to bark at her before rudely hanging up. He could have left things at that, but he apparently regretted his abruptness, so he called the operator back and apologized. From a documentary by Highlight History. Ruth quickly apologized for calling. Albert then apologized right back, explaining his fiance had recently died of pneumonia, and so he wasn't in a good state of mind. The next day, Ruth called again, and the relationship grew from there, ultimately seeing Albert get her a job as a secretary for Motorboating Magazine, where he worked. Ruth Brown's parents were Scandinavian, but they met in America, to which both had migrated in the late 19th century. The couple had two children together, a son named Andrew, born in 1889, followed two years later by a daughter called Mamie Ruth. Now, most accounts have Ruth actually being born... March the 27th, 1895, in Manhattan. As you hear here from a briefcase documentary, but I don't think that's true. I found a 1905 state census from New York with the whole family on it, and Ruth in that year is said to be 14 years old, putting her birthday in 1891. I'm not sure when she started giving 1895 as her year of birth. Maybe it was around the same time she switched her name from Mamie Ruth to Ruth May. Regardless, both changes stuck. They're on her tombstone and everything. Anyway. Her mother, Josephine, was from Sweden, and her father, named Henry Sorensen, was from Norway. Henry changed his name to Brown, as he thought it would be easier now he was living in America. The family were considered nice, respectable people, and every day Henry would go to work, while Josephine took care of the couple's two children. He was a carpenter, and although there was a lot of work for him, the wages were low, and the family were relatively poor, so Ruth and her elder brother rarely experienced the finer things in life. Ruth's upbringing wasn't posh. She lived with relatives in a crowded tenement during her most formative years. Her father suffered from epileptic seizures that always seemed to hobble any momentum he gained in his job. Mom Josephine had to help make ends meet by working as a sick room attendant. Ruth wasn't a healthy child. She had intestinal surgery at age six, then an appendectomy at 12 that, according to author Landis McKellar, was initially botched and caused her bouts of misery until she finally got corrective surgery at age 18. McKellar wrote that Ruth, quote, tired easily and was unable to keep up with other girls at play and in sports. She was given to fainting, which she blamed on epilepsy inherited from her father, end quote. Ruth stopped going to school after the eighth grade and did what a lot of teens born to immigrant parents did at the time. She got a job. She worked overnight hours as a telephone operator earning $15 per week, which translates to as much as $450 a week in today's money. She didn't spend any of that, however. She turned over the pay envelope to her parents without even opening it. But she was young and eager to get on. So in order to increase her chances of finding a different job, 
She took classes in business and shorthand in the afternoons. Ruth was determined to make a better life for herself than the one that she had experienced during her childhood. These were exciting times for a young American girl. Many people had cars, the New York subway was operational, and with the rapid industrial and technological advancements, there were more opportunities available in the workplace. After Ruth and Albert had their meet cute over the phone, they met in real life in 1913. Ruth was a pretty lady, slim and tall with high cheekbones, blonde hair, and blue eyes. That surely played no role in her quickly being hired by Hearst to work as a proofreader and a copyist. She and Albert didn't work in the same office for the most part because Ruth was spread amongst various magazines. They overlapped in the early days at least. Albert was immediately smitten. He had previously been engaged to a woman named Jessie Gichard, but Jessie had tragically died a few months earlier. It's reported that the first day he met Ruth, he began flirting incessantly, playing with her hair and inviting her to events. She kept her distance at first, but eventually agreed to a lunch date. That she swatted away his sexual advances seemed to only intrigue him further. It's always a good sign, am I right, ladies? Albert loved to show Ruth the kind of lifestyle she had daydreamed about when a child, taking her out to meals and the theater and buying her trinkets and furs. Still, when he proposed around Christmas of 1914, Ruth declined. He tried again near her birthday in the spring, this time surprising her with a solitaire diamond engagement ring tucked inside of what appeared to be a simple box of chocolates. Ruth's resolve melted, and four months later, the couple got married in her parents' apartment. It was not a happy event, however. Ruth was on her period, and she had awful periods, painful ones. As if that weren't bad enough, Albert reacted to this inconvenience in the most red-flaggy way possible. He lost his temper, ditched his new wife at her parents' apartment, and went back to his family's home for the night. I've ignored a few omens in my time and feel qualified to say that this was a big one. Another, arguably, was the way in which he remained devoted to his ex-love, Jessie Gichard. Her death had clearly been incredibly traumatic for him. A schoolteacher, Jessie fell sick with pneumonia and, with Albert by her side, died of the illness on November 21, 1912. She was 30 years old. Some of the ways Albert kept her memory alive seem reasonable and healthy. He filled scrapbooks of mementos and photographs from their trips to the Catskills and Adirondacks, for example. Albert also wore a keepsake pin near his heart every day inscribed with the initials J.G. And he had named his boat Jesse G., though he renamed it Ruth upon his new wife's request. Other nods to Jesse were potentially less healthy. For example, Albert insisted on putting a portrait of Jesse on his and Ruth's bedroom wall, so no matter where they moved, there was his first love staring down on them. And when the couple argued, which was often because he had a quick temper, he would inevitably invoke Jesse's name and compare Ruth unfavorably to the woman he'd really wanted to marry. From Briefcase. He wished she was more like his deceased fiancée, and he didn't mind telling her. It was a pity, he said, 
but Ruth couldn't be more like Jess. It's perhaps not surprising that the marriage went downhill pretty quickly. There was a 12-year age gap between them. Around about 12 years anyway. And the energetic Ruth was disappointed that her husband was not more outgoing. But Albert was equally frustrated. But his wife was too fun-loving and didn't take things seriously enough. As McKellar wrote, quote, When the marriage first began to deteriorate, Snyder would try to interest his wife in sex and she would refuse. Then there was a stage where he would force himself on her. Eventually, things got to the point where he stopped bothering her altogether. One day, Mrs. Snyder's photograph disappeared from his desk at Motorboating Magazine. He never mentioned her name in the office again. End quote. On top of all of this, Albert was a heavy drinker. When Prohibition hit in 1919, he was among the millions in America who straight up ignored the alcohol ban and started making beer and wine in his cellar. He found a source to steadily supply him with bootleg whiskey, too, which was his evening drink of choice. Ruth drank plenty as well and could over-imbibe with the best of them, but Albert was basically a functioning alcoholic. He had built up a high tolerance and often drove the couple home drunk, sometimes passing out en route. Ruth wanted a divorce and in the 1920s could have gotten one without much fuss. She simply needed to file and acknowledge in court that she no longer loved her husband and a divorce would have been granted. But she and Albert had a daughter in 1917, a girl named Lorraine. Ruth wanted both custody of the kid and alimony to help support her, which meant she needed to prove cruelty or adultery to a judge. You would think Albert's history of raping his wife and slapping her around would have sufficed, but not so in the 1920s. It might have been acknowledged as unkind, but cruelty in this context would have been a much higher bar. As for adultery, Ruth had plenty of suspicions, but she'd never caught him in the act, so she couldn't prove that either. One day in June of 1925, Ruth met a friend of hers named Kitty Kaufman at a Swedish restaurant for lunch. A hosiery salesman named Harry Folsom dined with the ladies, and as the three ate and laughed and had a flirty good time, Folsom spotted an old friend. And that's when Judd Gray first entered Ruth Snyder's life. He was born Henry Judd Gray in 1892, though he went by Judd most of his life. Judd's father, Charles, was a well-to-do jeweler who ultimately co-owned a manufacturing firm in Newark, New Jersey, called the Gray House Company. A newspaper archive search shows that the company was headquartered on Lawrence Street and was doing well enough in the 1910s to be recruiting for workers. Judd, like Ruth, was the second of two children born to his parents. He adored his mother and older sister, Margaret, and grew up comfortably in high-end homes with nice furniture and oriental rugs. Also like Ruth, Judd was sick a lot in his childhood, once in adolescence nearly dying of pneumonia. The stint was supposedly so bad that Judd was bedridden for months. Between that and Judd suffering an eye injury that left his eyesight permanently affected, Judd's mother became a doting, influential figure in his life who clearly adored her little boy. A few months after Ruth and Albert were married in their so far completely separate timelines, 
Judd married a woman named Isabella Kallenbach, who would quickly become pregnant with her daughter Jane. He was known as a reliable and honest person who helped his neighbors, attended church, and ran errands for his elderly mother. Around the time daughter Jane was born, Judd shifted career paths from following in his dad's footsteps, selling jewelry, to following in his grandfather's, selling corsets. It's a strange job for me to picture in today's society, but he basically went around his grandfather's old sales territory hawking corsets to women. Whining and dining was part of the gig. Judd did well enough at this that in 1921, he landed a job at a different firm called the Benjamin and John's Company, which sold a line of brassieres called Bien Jolie. The ads for these things featured a risque-for-the-era illustration of a woman in negligee alongside the words, The Secret of a Good Figure. The Newark-based company promised that their bras were the, quote, daintiest, most serviceable garments imaginable creating beautiful bust and shoulders, end quote. Judd was still working for this company when, in 1925, he joined his buddy Harry Folsom for lunch with Kitty Kaufman and Ruth Snyder. This chance encounter is where these two separate lives of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray, these timelines so far uncrossed, merge. Knowing how the story ends, I, as a writer, would love to rewrite how the day unfolds, I'd love to say the foursome chats and eats and even shares a bootlegged drink or two and then goes their separate ways. But that's, of course, not what happened. Something clicked between Judd and Ruth. They were intrigued by and drawn to each other. They exchanged contact info under the guise of Judd giving Ruth a corset, but not long after, she arrived to pick it up, and as Judd was fitting her in it, he noticed her shoulders were sunburned. He happened to have some ointment to apply, and one thing led to another. It might have been romantic had they not both been married, but they were. They usually met in hotels where they registered as Mr. and Mrs. Gray. They became such a frequent visitor to one that they kept a small suitcase in a hotel locker. The new lovers were basically polar opposites of the spouses on whom they were cheating. Judd's wife, Isabella, was considered refined and pedigreed. Ruth, having come from a tougher background, was far more carefree and adventurous. She had a lot of male admirers, though that doesn't necessarily mean she had a lot of lovers, because had that been true, I think it would have come out in the eventual trial. But basically, the men in her neighborhood liked chatting with her because she was fun and flirty. They'd do favors for her. The mailman, for example, didn't think twice about hand-delivering mail to her if she requested that her husband not see correspondence from a particular sender. Judd, meanwhile, was soft and gentle. He had always been coddled by his mother, and the two grew even closer after the 1920 death of Judd's dad, Charles. Judd had played sports in preparatory school, kind of a surprise given his bad eyesight, but he was by no means a jock. He was a smallish, stylish man with thick glasses. He no doubt provided Ruth with the tenderness her husband had no interest in showing her. Their affair was not some quick thing. It lasted more than two years. They would meet once or twice a week, their rendezvous made easier because Albert barely paid attention to Ruth anyway, and Judd often traveled for work, making his absences from home easy to cover. In court, Ruth would be repeatedly described by her opponents as abnormal in her sexual desires, 
which, given the time period, likely just meant she enjoyed sex a lot and didn't mind engaging in the still illegal act of oral sex either. Let's all gasp in shock together. Ruth and Judd didn't have designs to run away. There was no talk of him leaving Isabella for Ruth. While something obviously was amiss in his home life for him to be drawn to Ruth like a magnet, he still loved his wife and daughter. Now, for all the abnormal talk about Ruth and trial, somehow Judd wasn't slapped with that label, despite the fact that his nickname for his lover was, wait for it, Momsy. Ruth didn't mind it. She signed many of her love letters that way. Maybe it was related to the caregiving role she'd been thrust into after eighth grade when she went to work to support her family. Regardless, she seemed to enjoy caring for Judd. As the relationship got more intense, Ruth told Judd of her problematic marriage and how her husband pays her no attention, preferring to look at a photo of his deceased fiance and talk to her. She wanted to be free of him so she could have a more exciting life. The couple then started discussing ways of how Ruth could rid herself of her husband. The problem that Ruth and Judd had was that they were not criminals. She was a housewife and he was a corset salesman. It was all talk at first, just a macabre daydream, until it suddenly wasn't. The talk about Albert Snyder's death began innocently enough, well, as innocently as talk of someone's hoped-for demise can be, but then Ruth Snyder started taking action. Whether they were legitimate attempts to kill her husband remain up for debate, but the list is long enough to give you pause. From Highlight History, Ruth Snyder allegedly made several attempts to kill her husband, Zalbert, including twice trying to kill him via disconnecting the gas line on their oven. She also tried running their car in the garage with the garage door closed in the hopes of filling the house with carbon monoxide. Another time she poisoned his bootlegged whiskey, but it resulted in it tasting awful, so he dumped it out. On top of that, in another instance, while Albert was six, she allegedly added various drugs to the medicine he was taking, hoping the combination would kill him. In hindsight, it seems feasible that she really wanted Albert dead, but she didn't have the stomach to pull off murder herself. So she slowly started talking to her lover about it. Judd said, no, how could you think of such a thing? You must be crazy. Just divorce him, he said. After all, this is the roaring 20s. Women can even vote, dagnabbit. So surely you'll get over the scandal of being a divorced single mother. But Ruth was convinced Albert would fight for custody. And even if he didn't, how would she find decent enough work to support herself, her daughter, and, by this point, her mother Josephine, who had moved in with the Snyders after Ruth's father died? The resolution to this problem came in the form of Albert having a total of three life insurance policies, with some encouragement from Ruth on one and a bit of forgery on the other two, which totaled approximately $80,000, or about $1.1 million today. Ruth pressured Judd until, finally, he relented. The couple hatched a plan. Judd would come over one night while the family was at a party. He would lie in wait in Ruth's mother's room, a move made possible because Josephine was on a nursing assignment that night. Ruth would leave Judd a bunch of supplies to kill her husband, including some bootlegged whiskey to fortify himself. Though the actual murder weapon was a sash weight that Judd had bought for her a week or so prior. What's a sash weight, you ask? It's a large piece of metal used to counterbalance an old-style window when it was open. 
On March 20th, 1927, the plan was set. As the Snyders left their home, Ruth discreetly left two doors open to ensure that Judd could enter. He did. At the party, Ruth was uncharacteristically affectionate toward her husband to quash any suspicion. She also made a point to decline the many drinks offered to her at the party, suggesting that they be delivered to Albert instead. He was impressively drunk when he drove his wife and daughter home that night. Toxicology would put his blood alcohol content at 0.3%, and the threshold for death is generally accepted to be around 0.4%, and by today's legal standards, you're typically deemed too drunk to drive at 0.1%. In other words, Albert was properly plastered. Once they got home, Ruth put their daughter Lorraine to bed, whispered into Josephine's bedroom to confirm that Judd was there, and then told him to sit tight until she returned. Judd, having plied himself already with a provided whiskey, did as he was told. Soon, Ruth sneaked back into her mother's room. In the eventual trial, the couple's tales of what precisely went down this night diverged. Ruth would claim that she changed her mind and tried to stop Judd then had to rush to the bathroom because of more menstrual issues, and while she was distracted with that, Judd attacked Albert. The generally accepted version of the story is the one that Judd provided, however. He said that he hit the sleeping Snyder in the head with a weight, but it didn't knock Albert out. It just woke him up. Albert yelled for help and attempted to seize Judd, but Ruth allegedly grabbed the weight and brought it down hard on her husband's skull, rendering him unconscious and potentially the fatal blow, according to Judd. Nevertheless, for good measure, they tied a wire around his throat and used a pencil to twist and tighten it in order to strangle him, and then they stuffed the chloroform-soaked cotton up his nostrils and into his mouth. Next, they walked through the house, scattering some things about and hiding various valuable items to try to give the appearance of robbery. Then Ruth asked Judd to knock her in the head and tie her up, but Judd couldn't get himself to hit her, so he just loosely bound and gagged her. Ruth waited for hours and then finally dragged and wriggled her way to her daughter's bedroom and called for Lorraine to get help, which the nine-year-old girl did. A neighbor quickly came, followed by the police. At first blush, it looked something like a robbery, items strewn about the house and such, but the couple had made some serious blunders. For starters, Ruth had no head injury whatsoever, so when she told police she'd been unconscious for some five hours, that just didn't make sense. Also, not much appeared to be missing from the house. Ruth at first said she was missing jewelry, but police then found a stash of it hidden under her mattress. Detectives took Ruth in for questioning, and at first her story was simple. A foreign man awoke her and her husband, beat Albert to death, knocked her over the head, and robbed the house. Then an officer came in with Ruth's diary and casually asked, Who's Judd Gray? It was the beginning of the end. The way this tale is often told goes something like this. Ruth Snyder was a manipulative sex addict who lured Judd Gray into her tawdry web with her sights set, not just on pinning her husband's murder on him, but also with plans to poison Judd after forcing him to kill for her. Dead men tell no tales, right? That's certainly how the case was interpreted by the classic film noir Double Indemnity, released in 1944, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. 
can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. In fairness, the movie is only inspired by the case, not actually based on it. So it's not like it pretends to be a historically accurate account. In it, Stanwyck's unhappy in her marriage and wants out, but McMurray is a single insurance agent, not a married corset salesman, who becomes enamored enough to do her bidding. Then they shoot each other. Sorry for the spoiler. The main overlap with the real tale and the dramatized one, which I'll mention was based on a novella by the same name in hopes of keeping smart people from yelling at me, was the double indemnity part. That's when an insurance policy promises to pay two times its face value when death results from an accident, murder included, as opposed to a health problem like a heart attack. Ruth had pulled out enough life insurance on Albert that if he died naturally, she would have been able to claim $50,000, but just shy of double that if he died accidentally. Another way the movie overlaps is via Stanwyck's character, whose snake-like portrayal certainly fit with people's views of Ruth. Mrs. Snyder to lay blame on her lover, read a subhead on one story dated April 19, 1927, in the press of the Atlantic City. That story, by the way, was written by journalist Damon Runyon, whose stories are the basis for the musical Guys and Dolls. In that same April article, Runyon christened the Snyder case with the moniker The Dumbbell Murder. As Runyon succinctly explained, the nickname for the murder fit because, quote, it was so dumb, end quote. Runyon wrote, quote, They're charged with the killing four weeks ago of Albert Snyder, art editor of the magazine Motorboating, the blonde's husband and father of her nine-year-old daughter, under circumstances that for sheer stupidity and brutality have seldom been equaled in the history of crime. It was stupid beyond imagination, this slaughter, and so brutal that the thought of it probably makes many a peaceful, home-loving Long Islander like Albert Snyder shiver in his pajamas as he prepares for bed. End quote. Runyon's right about a few things here. The murder was obviously sloppily done. It was brutal and senseless, and Ruth didn't even get away with it for a night. Once she was questioned about Judd Gray, she told police everything in a confession and then told police where to find Judd, who had tried to shore up an alibi for himself at a hotel. He even had a buddy come to that hotel room and mail letters to his damn wife from the hotel so it would appear he'd been at the hotel all night. This probably sounds fairly well-planned, but Judd's efforts to establish an alibi were completely wiped out by the fact that, after he helped kill Albert Snyder, he got turned around and asked a police officer for directions, a police officer who would remember his face and destroy his alibi anyway. Ruth also did pin most of the blame on Judd in her eventual trial testimony. While she had admitted playing a part in the murder in her initial confession, she recanted that, said it was given under duress, and shifted the actual act to her lover. Now, it seemed at first Judd was doing the same in the opposite direction. At trial, in fact, Judd's lawyers promised to prove that his incriminating statement was forced and that Ruth was to blame for everything that happened. But that's not how things ultimately unfolded. For starters, Ruth and Judd were tried together, which is kind of crazy. 
Ruth's lawyers wanted a separate trial, but prosecutors figured it'd be easier to convince a jury that one of these schmoes was guilty if evidence was presented against the duo at the same time. And Judd seemed A-OK with this approach, no doubt because public sentiment was more on his side from the start. So, paired alongside Ruth, Judd surely felt more confident that he'd be left standing. During the trial, the public and the jury strongly sided with Judd, who was almost universally noted as being an outstanding person, even by the detectives interviewing him. For example, the Herald Tribune noted, He was a Red Cross worker in the World War. He was an assiduous worker for the Sunday School of the First Methodist Church, was quite mannered in the home and a local country club man. He golfed and bridged and motored. He was a member of the Orange Lodge of Elks. All facts now adduced point to a love-mad man completely in the sway of the woman whose will was steel and brain active and intelligent. She dominated him, police said, and forced her will upon him. The judge overseeing the case sided with prosecutors. So you basically had a prosecutor blaming Judd and Ruth, Judd blaming Ruth, and Ruth blaming Judd. And this trial, it was a straight-up circus. The courtroom could accommodate 250 comfortably. 500 people could pack in. Yet for this trial, some 2,000 people jammed themselves into the chambers. People counterfeited tickets to get inside, which we've heard of happening in other cases on this podcast. But in this one, there were physical fights over seating. There were people climbing in through windows. There were 100-plus reporters covering every day of trial. And on top of all that, this trial marked the first time in New York legal history that audio equipment was used to ensure onlookers could hear every stinking detail. That proved useful when Ruth took the stand in her defense, and she testified as expected. This was Judd's idea, Judd's execution, I was under his control. Judd, on the other hand, decided not to blame Ruth after all. He said that her testimony blaming him kind of broke him. So he decided not to lay all the blame on her. He said he, indeed, hit Albert once over the head with the sash weight, that Albert woke up and struggled, that Ruth hit Albert a second time, that both of them wrapped piano wire around his neck, that they staged the robbery in such a frenzy that it was overdone so much that it didn't even look like a robbery, and that he couldn't bring himself to bash Ruth in the head, which is a big reason police never bought her foreign intruder story. Prosecutors applauded all this as being the absolute truth. The district attorney himself would note that Gray was a decent, red-blooded, upstanding American citizen. You know, other than the whole cheating on his wife and murder thing. Ruth, on the other hand, was painted more or less as Eve offering Adam the apple, corrupting Judd with her womanly ways, and thus her side of the story was pretty much wholly dismissed. The jury deliberated less than two hours. They found both Ruth and Judd guilty of murder, and both were sentenced to die. This was a big deal in Ruth's case especially, because Ruth was the first woman set for execution in New York in about 30 years. Plus, it was clear from the moment the verdict was read that she didn't want to die. She crumpled like a piece of paper and wept. Judd, on the other hand, seemed more or less at peace with the decision. Now, I've mentioned Landis McKellar's book, The Double Indemnity Murder, which I read as part of my research. And I have to say that I don't think I've ever read anything that made capital punishment seem as barbaric as this accounting. 
The back and forth that these two people endured with appeals and stays and then overturned stays and then the state attorney general insisting that the execution take place immediately. When in one day, Ruth went from hearing that there was a delay, a development that led her to singing happily in her sing-sing cell, optimistic about a commutation to life in prison, to hearing that she would be dead within just hours. Ruth was so distraught that prison officials decided to put her out of her misery first. Her death was predictably gruesome, and there's a reason electric chairs aren't used in all but a few states anymore. After the volts surged through the electrodes placed on Ruth's shaved head and body, her skin boiled and smoke wisped from her singed hair. The same happened just minutes later to Judd. But Ruth's death had an added indignity. A journalist allowed to witness the execution strapped a camera to his ankle, limped into the room undetected, and managed to take a photograph as Ruth's body seized while strapped to the chair. The resulting image ran huge on the front page of the New York Daily News under the all-caps headline DEAD, punctuated by an italicized exclamation point for good measure. If this sounds familiar, it might be because Guns N' Roses featured the photo as part of the enclosed artwork on their 1991 Use Your Illusion album. Not only did that daily news issue sell 1.5 million copies, which was about half a million more than had been typical during the Snyder Gray trial, but it's also considered the harbinger of the modern era of tabloid journalism. And that's what happened on January 12, 1928. To research the story, I read Landis McKellar's book, the full title of which is The Double Indemnity Murder, Ruth Snyder, Judd Gray, and New York's Crime of the Century. I strangely had trouble finding accurate documentaries, so I relied largely on highlight history and briefcase for outside audio. Then I read the newspaper coverage of the day, which was weird. There was literally a story headlined, Prison Will Prove If Ruth's a Blonde. Spoiler alert, she wasn't. She used peroxide to lighten her hair, or, as this story put it, she was, quote, intent on playing hooky from the brunette class, end quote. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 